You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. you blow it, the hound of heaven, right? He keeps coming at us, making all of the wrongs right. Praise God for that. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So let me say it once again. It doesn't mean we never sin, but it does mean that there will be this yearning on our part for righteousness. And it will lead the believer day by day by day in that direction. To experience salvation in Christ requires humble repentance. It can't happen without acknowledging that you're sinful and you need and want Him to save you from that sin. He washes you and makes you righteous in the sight of God. Many tack on extra conditions to that, such as holy living. They argue that if you sin, you forfeit your salvation. As Pastor Mike will clarify in today's message, That's not how it works. You should desire to live holy, but there will be moments of weakness as long as you walk this earth. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 3 as he continues his message, The Grace of God. you to cleave to that which is good. It'll help you to cleave to Jesus Christ. Verses, and in contrast, think about that. The unbeliever who gravitates towards sin, who has an appetite for sin, right? Who uh, really delights in practicing sin. You see the contrast between the two? How do you explain that? The only explanation is you got to put Christ behind it. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But there's something even more, something even more. Also, this life is proof of the fact that we are born of God, that we are a child of God. Now, we've already covered this in our series on Thursday evenings. Like, for example, in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 4 through 6, he who says, I know him, I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I've gone through the conversion experience, I've taken the name of Christ, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know, it's possible for us to even deceive ourselves. I guess that's what John is suggesting here. He goes on, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. By this we know that we are in him. And then in verse 6, he who says he abides in him that is in Christ ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now jump ahead to chapter 3 and verse 9. 
And there we read, whoever has been born of God does not sin or does not continue in sin. And I'm going to pick up on that in just a moment. So don't be confused about that. It doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again. But we don't continue in sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. God won't leave you alone. He won't allow you to continue in sin. He'll convict you of your sin. He'll convict you of your sin. He'll keep going after you. There won't be any peace. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you blow it, the hound of heaven, right? He keeps coming at us, making all of the wrongs right. Praise God for that. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So let me say it once again. It doesn't mean we never sin, but it does mean that there will be this yearning on our part for righteousness. And it will lead the believer day by day by day in that direction. Listen, this is a huge improvement over the case of Adam, whose life, that is the natural life, which apparently didn't lead in that direction. He fell into sin. Adam chose rebellion and death. So in Christ, remember now what this all this message is all about. It's all about the grace of God. I'm serving up all of these different examples to just try to impress upon you what that looks like, what it means, how it affects the believer. So in Christ granting us divine life, Christ in us, truly the grace of God abounded. Now, that brings us to our second point, our second example of this grace, and that is justified from all sin. Justified from all sin. Now, let me give you a cross-reference for this. Romans chapter 5 and verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, Adam, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Now, how many times have you read this and you, you just really, you just couldn't make heads or tails of it? Well, let me hopefully explain what Paul is referring to here. Paul here is comparing the entrance of death into the world by Adam and then, in contrast, the entry of eternal life into the world through the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. It is making the comparison of sin and grace, condemnation and justification. So, how is it that the grace of God in Christ to justification is greater than the working of sin in Adam to condemnation? Well, think about it. The condemnation was based on just one sin. It was just one sin, right? God pronounced judgment upon Adam and Eve. It was only one sin. They just, there was only one restriction back then, one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one, right? So the condemnation that they received was based upon just one sin. But justification is God's answer, not only for the first sin, but for every sin forever. You see? That's the difference between the two. Notice, go back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 16. What does it say? It says, Many offenses. It doesn't say one offense. What does it say there? It says many offenses resulted in justification. 
Now, I guess at this point we're to talk about justification. What is justification? That's another word that is flung around Christian circles, and, and uh, we hear it a lot. What is justification? What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me say that justification is a legal term. It's an explanation that is offered that justifies an individual. Like, for example, let's say there was a, uh, you were uh, taken by the police, some offense that had taken place, and, and the cops came to your door, and uh, they put you in handcuffs and took you away. And they throw you into jail, and the hearing is on the next day or whatever. So the people that had brought the accusations against you, the indictments, are witnesses or whatever, and now you're standing before uh, the judge, and the, uh, uh, the defense you know, presents their case. I don't know if this is a good example or illustration, but I'm going to go for it anyway. And uh, so they say this, that, and the other thing, bringing these indictments. Yes, he broke into our house. He stole this or whatever. I don't know. You fill in the blank. But, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, it's now your defense attorney's chance to make your appeal to stand before the judge and the jury. And so who is your trial lawyer? It's none other than Jesus Christ. And he presents your case to the Father. And by the way, the, the, the thing that exonerates you is that you have some of Christ's DNA. You know, DNA is a big thing right now in exonerating prisoners. Well, the truth is Christ in you, right? You have his DNA. And then that's all that the judge needs to hear. You're exonerated. You're justified. It's a legal term. It's an explanation that justifies you see, it's Christ in us, referring to the work of God in us, making us right with him. In sin, we're not right with him. If we're in sin, we're in rebellion against God, and thus we can't be right with him. And this is, you know, that, that original sin was passed over and on to every man that has ever been born since the garden, since the fall in the garden. In fact, uh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans in chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, every human being that ever lived has sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the doctrine of justification then is most important because it tells how one who is in rebellion against God can therefore get right with him, get right with God. So justification is being justified from all sin by the work of Christ alone, received by faith, and not by our own righteousness. Let me give you a couple of cross-references for this. Romans chapter 3, let's go back to Romans, verses 22 through 24. Even the righteousness of God through faith, notice, in Jesus Christ to all and all who believe, for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There you have it right there, that cross-reference. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then jump ahead to Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, that's, that's all that God asks of us, just simply to believe on Christ, to believe on that finished and complete work. Christ dying in our place upon the cross, who justifies the ungodly. His faith, your faith, is accounted for righteousness. 
Okay, so what's the implication here? Well, simply God the Father has accepted Christ's sacrifice as the payment of our debt and has imputed his righteousness to us in place of the sin. He satisfied, that is Christ, he satisfied the justice of God. Clearly, his grace abounds in justification. So there you have another example. But there's more. Let's go on to our third point. And that is we are co-heirs together with Christ. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Co-heirs together with Christ. Let me give you a cross-reference for this. We're getting a lot of miles out of Romans today, by the way. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. And if children, and that's who you are in Christ, that's who we've become, sons and daughters. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now think about this as it relates to Adam. At best, Adam was God's caretaker over an earthly paradise. And, and I mean, basically, you could sum up his life in that one statement. But in contrast, you know, talk about grace, we are to inherit all that is Christ's and actually rule with him over creation. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, we shall also reign with him. But you know what? There's even something greater than that. In Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What is he referring to here? I believe he's referring to our capacity now that we have to know God, to have fellowship with God, communion with God, and access to God. The heavenlies. I think that's what Paul was thinking of there. Our fellowship and communion now with the Father. So that's all a part of our inheritance. It's an inheritance that cannot depreciate in value or be lost. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, speaking of our inheritance, it says, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. And that's the reason why Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven. You know, where thieves can't break in, it won't rust, the moths aren't going to chew away at it, right? How cool is that? You know, all of what we do while we are here upon the earth to establish God's kingdom, right? We are, in essence, storing up treasures in heaven. And one day when we cross over into eternity, when we enter into heaven, It'll be there, stored up, waiting for us for all of eternity to enjoy. That's, that's pretty cool. You know, I hope that none of us have any regrets that we didn't store up enough, you know, of that inheritance to enjoy, right? That you're not just living on Social Security when you get to heaven, you know, kind of a thing, right? Anyway, so an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away, in heaven kept for you. So talk about grace. We are co-heirs together with Christ. And then finally, our fourth and our final point, just write this down, exceeding joy. It's this grace of God that brings such exceeding joy, you know, into our lives. And as a cross-reference for this, the book of Jude in verse 24, there's only one chapter in that book of the Bible. In verse 24, now to him, it's sort of like a benediction or a doxology, I guess. 
either one. Jude, you know, he, he just couldn't contain himself any longer, and he just breaks out into this statement. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, what do we take away from this? Well, this teaches us that our joy in God in the future, but not only in the future, also in the present now, is greater than the joy Adam had in God before the fall, even in that perfect garden of Eden. You say, okay, now Phenizio's gone off the deep end. You got to be kidding me. The garden of Eden? We, we presently have more joy than Adam had the capacity to enjoy in the garden of Eden? Come on, you got to be kidding me. How's that? Well, think about this. Although Adam's joy was great, he had nothing to compare his state of sinfulness to and therefore couldn't value it as much as the redeemed do. That experience that we go through, we know what it is to be lost and to be brought from that darkness into God's wonderful light. He didn't didn't know anything about that. He was made perfect and without sin. Think about our lives before knowing Christ, all of the crazy things that we've done, and now we've been delivered from those things. The power of sin, the bondage of sin has been broken, and and man, exceeding joy, right? In Luke's gospel in chapter 7 and verse 47, you know, after, uh, I think it was uh, Jesus made this statement after Mary Magdalene had taken that precious ointment and just anointed the Lord with it, it was It was a very expensive ointment. And, you know, we could have taken that ointment and sold it and and used the money to distribute and minister to the poor. And so uh, Jesus, in his explanation of what had just taken place, to make the point, said, those who had been forgiven much love much. And it's been suggested that this woman, Mary Magdalene, was possessed by demons. She had gone through demon possession. There's been an awful lot of speculation about who this woman was and what went on in her life. But for that, we are sure, uh, because the Bible does tell us, whether she was a prostitute or, you know, ill repute, I don't know, whatever. But we do know that she was possessed by demons. And so in offering an explanation of what this woman had just done in worshiping Jesus, he says, those who have been forgiven much love much. Now, listen, I'm going to close out with... uh, just a little bit of a story. You're familiar with the name John Newton? John Newton was the writer of the great hymnal that we sing and sing that the church has sung throughout the ages, right? Amazing Grace. And I don't know if you knew where Newton, out of his own personal experience, wrote that hymnal that has been such a blessing to the church throughout the ages. So I wanted to give you a little background. Okay, so John Newton, the great English preacher, but before he was known as the great preacher, was raised in a Christian home in England in his early years. But he became orphaned when he was seven and was sent to live with a non-Christian relative. Their Christianity was mocked, and he was persecuted for his faith. At last, in order to escape the conditions in the home, Newton ran away to sea and became an apprentice in the British Navy. Debauched and rebellious, at last he deserted and ran away to Africa. 
He tells in his own words that he went there for just one purpose, that I may sin to the full. In Africa, Newton joined forces with a Portuguese slave trader in whose home he was cruelly treated. At times, the slave trader went away on expeditions, and the young man was left in the charge of the slave trader's African wife, the head of his harem. She hated all men and took her hatred out upon Newton. He tells that she exercised such power in her husband's absence that he was compelled to eat his food off the dusty floor like a dog. At last, the young Newton fled from this treatment and made his way to the coast, where he lit a signal fire and was picked up by a slave ship on its way to England. The captain was disappointed that Newton had no ivory to sell. But because the young man knew something about navigation, he was made a ship's mate. He could not keep even this position. During the voyage, he broke into the ship's supply of rum and distributed it to the crew so that the crew became drunk. Can you relate to that? Been there, done that. In a stupor, Newton fell into the sea and was saved from drowning only when one of the officers speared him with a harpoon, leaving a fist-sized scar in his thigh. Near the end of the voyage, as they were nearing Scotland, the ship on which Newton was riding encountered heavy winds. It was blown off course and it began to sink. Newton was sent down into the hold with the slaves who were transported and told to man the pumps. He was frightened to death, feeling sure that the ship would sink and he would drown. He worked the pumps for four days. And as he worked, he began to cry out to God from the hold of the ship. He began to remember verses he had been taught as a child. And as he remembered them, he was miraculously transformed, and thus he was born again. He went on to become a great teacher of the word of God in England. And of this storm, William Coper, the poet, wrote, this is another man of God, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Newton himself wrote many poems among them, how sweet the name of Jesus' sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. But listen, Newton was a great preacher of grace. And it is no wonder, for he had been lost and was found. He had been blind, but by the abounding grace of God in Christ, he had come to speak. Folks, isn't that our exact same experience? You know, every one of us could sing this song with real conviction because you know what? It's our song as well. In my father's house, there's a place for me. In my father's house, where I long when something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, 
we remember the first times we walked in the door. And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcast. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house. <laughs>